as hard as it is, uh, might be to believe, 2019 marks the 10th anniversary uh, since what became known as the Miracle on the Hudson. U.S. Air Flight 1549 took off from New York's LaGuardia uh, on the afternoon of July, January 15th in 2009. And, uh, of course, as you know, as it took off, the plane's engine apparently sucked up a bunch of Canadian geese, uh, disabling the, uh, or destroying the engines and disabling the plane. But under the cool leadership of the airplane's captain, Sully Sullenberger, uh, the plane was able to make an emergency landing on the frigid surface of the Hudson River, just on the other side of Manhattan from the airport. It was an incredible, <laughs> dramatic landing that happened, which led to the eventual saving of every one of the passengers. Not one was lost. And you can imagine that that left kind of an indelible imprint on these uh, people. Uh, so much so that in January of this year, all of those passengers held a reunion uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, which was actually where the plane was heading before it crashed. Uh, and everybody was there. Sully came. Uh, the co-pilot was there. <laughs> they even had reassembled the broken parts of the plane in a hangar so that the passengers could come and, I don't know, tour it or something, <laughs> something like that. they go and see the plane that they were on. It was a huge deal. Well, the reporters came out in mass, and one reporter met with a guy named Trip Harris, who basically explained that the whole thing had completely changed his life. He said this. He said, all I could think about when it was going on was the thing, things that I was going to miss if I died. That day fundamentally shifted my priorities. The reporter went on to say, it colored his life ever since. He decided to spend more time with his family and have adventures and experiences that he might otherwise have put off. He said, that day made me a better father. It even made me a better husband. Look, I think if you begin to survey people who experience these kinds of stories, these dramatic rescue operations, you're going to find that they all have a way of, of almost curiously bonding uh, the people that sort of survive them. And I think that very well may be the reason why these newly freed Jewish people are led by Yahweh into what had to seem like the very arms of destruction. But in one of the most, you know, dramatic and, and let's face it, really cool <laughs> ways, you know, God yields this astounding power in order to sort of bring up one of those amazing rescue stories, I mean, ever written. Who could make up a story like this if you really think about it? And so this is the reason why, I think why the story of the Israelites at the Red Sea b becomes this paradigm throughout the entire Bible for the way God's people thought about their own rescue. You know, 40 years after this event, Joshua uh, would be there with the next generation of Jewish people about to lead them across the Jordan River. Remember this? And what happens? The waters part as they do. Uh, later on in Isaiah uh, chapter 51, uh, there's, a, there's a reference that Isaiah makes to a Red Sea crossing where he says something interesting. He says, awake, awake, put on strength in verse 9. O arm of the Lord, awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces and pierced that dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Well, the second half of that is clearly talking about the Red Sea as, they, as the people of God passed over. But did you hear that mention of the word Rahab in, the in verse 9? What, what, is, what is that about? Well, I found a commentator explained that in ancient Near Eastern creation stories, the world was created out of this boiling conflict. 
uh, and which was oftentimes depicted uh, by God subduing another sort of false god who was associated with the water and was depicted as a sea monster, which name was Rahab. And so Isaiah there is making this really fascinating connection between sort of what happened at the Red Sea incident and what happened at the very creation. Because in Genesis chapter 1, you know, you see the earth gets formed. Remember when it was formless and void, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters? In other words, what happened at creation, at least in Isaiah's mind, was that God defeated all of the sources of chaos there. That God was there bringing about beauty and order where there formerly was none. And that chaos is called Rahab. So it's a little wonder that in generations to come, the nation of Egypt would eventually become known as, you guessed it, Rahab in the Jewish vernacular, all over the Old Testament. Look, here's the whole point. The the sea, great bodies of water in the Jewish mind uh, came to be sort of a symbol of chaos and disorder of ugliness. The, the, the Jewish folks were not so fond of the sea. Uh, it, it, was, it just had bad cultural connotations with them. Sure, there was a great salvation that happened to them there, but it ain't like I want to go back. Negative connotations with the sea. By the way, we talked about this a year ago. I'm sure you all remember. When Jesus was there with his disciples in the boat, and he has this experience where the seas start churning, And they're freaked out, as every one of us would be, when Jesus just speaks and it calms down, Luke chapter 8. And what we saw then was that Jesus was trying to show his followers that he didn't just have control over the literal sea around them, but he also had control over the chaos and the disorder in their own minds and in their own hearts. We actually also talked about how that helps us explain that in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, we find out that in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sea. And the people who love a sort of lovely ocean vista are kind of disappointed. Well, I don't, are we going to miss that? It doesn't mean that we're not going to have those in heaven. It just means that that will be the end of the chaos. God puts an end in the new heavens and the new earth to the life-destroying destruction that goes on in our lives every day. So why are we talking about this? Well, because of all of the lore that surrounds the Jewish people's dread of the sea in general, it all starts here in our passage this morning. It all began here. Because we're looking this entire fall at a question uh, that is the question of how it is that the people of God were born. Where did they come from? What their foundations? And what we're going to find is that one of the most unifying factors that went into fashioning these people, I guess into a geopolitical body, I guess, is the fact that they were rescued at the sea. And so therefore, it becomes this powerful emblem of how the powerful power of God rescues people from their enemies. So what's exactly happening in this, po- in this book, in this story? Two, two things. Number one, I think we see an impossible situation. That's the first thing that the passage screams. And the second thing is we see an, a miraculous salvation. Just two points this morning. Don't feel slighted because there's only two. Normally there's three. But you only get two this morning. <laughs> first of all, The passage is trying to tell us this was an impossible situation. And and you see how terrifying the the conflict has gotten? Pharaoh has lost his mind. In verse 25, we find that even his own advisors have been like, this is not going to work. Don't resist the God of the Hebrews. It's not going well for you. But I don't know. Maybe he doesn't have enough enough of his own sort of punishment. And he goes after his former slave labor force. But did you notice how often in the passage read that the word chariot gets used? 
Over and over again, you get the writer being fixated on the chariots. Why? Well, because up until that time, that was the fiercest fighting apparatus that was known to that world. Uh, It was the symbol of the military might of the Egyptians. And so the writer is trying to get us to understand that there really was nothing worse that could have happened than to have this army come at you. This is as bad as it could possibly get. There is no known force in the universe quite like this. Okay, this is one of those times where your preacher is very glad for the Marvel Cinematic Universe for giving us superhero movies. And in case you're not initiated with that particular world, uh, you may not realize that one of the last movies uh, of the Avengers called Endgame, there's this, there's this moment, in, spoiler alert, um, where Captain America is standing alone. And I mean he's standing there all by himself. Everybody else is gone. He's beaten, beleaguered. His his shield is completely cracked. But the way the cinematographer shot this particular scene is, is it's a wide shot of all this sort of uh, 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 destroyed landscape. And there is teeny tiny little Captain America. And he's just braced, broken shield in hand. (laughs) On the right side of the screen is this tsunami of evil powers coming at him. And you're thinking to yourself, well, this ought to be good. That's the feeling that Moses wants to evoke in you when he talks about where the Israelites were there at the edge of the Red Sea. They are trapped, hopeless, fearful, doubting. They've got an uncrossable sea behind them and this culture's version of a weapon of mass destruction in front of them. In other words, Moses wants us to kind of feel a little bit of the desperation that they found themselves in. And by the way, this is a major theme throughout really the whole Bible. When it comes to water boundaries... Look, our modern world allows us to live in a place where, you know, we're a little bugged by the fact that I got to drive, you know, 15 whole minutes out of the way in order to cross the Mississippi River where the only bridge is. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, why don't they put a new bridge up there anyway? But, but in that culture, you know, they didn't have the access to bridges and tunnels and ferries and airplanes that for us make bodies of water no big deal. By the way, do you know that there's no mention in the Bible of bridges? Doesn't have anything to do with the sermon. I just thought that was fascinating. There's no bridges in the Bible. But in that age, you've got to understand that in the biblical landscape, waters had a function. Waters divided. And you know this from some of the themes from the stories that you know. Think about even Genesis chapter 1. The, the waters above are divided from the waters below. So that if you want to ascend to the depths or ascend to the heights, you have to do so through water. The waters divide the land from the dry ground. In the Bible, you'll notice that waters divided, uh, divide with, with, with great waters in order to make crossing that water really like going into a different country. Even beyond just a different country, it's oftentimes a way of entering into a whole new time and space, uh, separating one era from another. You know, Moses, Noah, excuse me, sort of passes through the flood into a brand new world. Jacob crosses, crosses the Jabbok River into a brand new name. You've got Joshua, who's leading the children of Israel across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Even in the New Testament, there's a case to be made that John the Baptist, who was baptizing, of course, was baptizing his people, what? Into a new kingdom. And and, and really, if you really want to push it further, it's only when Jesus becomes the living water that he pours out for his people that you find all of these separations uh, disappearing between Jew and Greek, between male and female, slave and free. Look, so the story of the Jews' rescue 
at the Red Sea is, is punctuated by this totally indefensible military position. You've got the sea at your back, so there's no retreat if things go badly. And you have, you have the embodiment of sheer inevitability coming at you head on in the Egyptian army. <laughs> and if that's not enough, the Hebrew people themselves have gone crazy. They have lost their minds. It's like they have taken a break from reality. Uh, do you realize that, that, that verse 11 was total sarcasm. Was it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you decided to drag us out here to kill us, Moses? You realize this is Egypt, the, the place we're known for giant, huge graves called the pyramids, right? Jesus was no, the, the, Egypt was known for that. And so in the minds of these people, they only see two options. Two options. Either we're going to die in the desert or we're going to be slaves in Egypt. A- anybody see some problem in that calculus there? <laughs> It's like, look, does it ever occur to you that God actually has a salvation plan for you? That God has just delivered plague after deadly plague against their enemies. Do you not think that he's able to bring about a salvation for you? But what you get in these people, I'm going to return to this theme again, in verses, especially in verses 11 and 12. That is the language of addiction and discouragement. And it does something very peculiar to its victims because they can't see a way out. And it's important for us to sort of take a deep dive into the psychology of broken people because we got to see it in ourselves. You know, uh, I served in campus ministry for years and years with people, not all of them, but every now and then would be the embodiment of what we would call privileged. They've had relatively easy lives. And invariably, when the conversation would turn to how Christianity views uh, the poor, and how they view the broken down, the people that haven't been able to sort of get themselves out of their own situation, you'd meet, it'd be met with something like, I don't know, was this that complicated? Tell them to get a job. And of course, my response would always be like, okay, <clears throat> all you're telling me when you say things like that is that you don't know one poor person. Why? Because what happens when all of a sudden the brokenness and the poverty and the shame gets into people, it takes hold of you inside your gut. So that all of a sudden, you don't make decisions rationally. Two plus two do not equal four in the midst of a broken person. What the Jews are showing is is that they are psychologically damaged and the enslavement has made them that way. The poverty has gotten ingrained in them. And yet the Bible wants, to see, wants us to see ourselves in these newly freed people. That's the reason why. God looks and realizes that there's a bonding that happens when my people reflect on exactly what they were before I came and intervened in their lives. For our purposes, before we met Jesus. Because every Christian reports on a time in their lives when there was no light on the horizon. Everyone's been through that. You didn't know where you were going to go. All hope was lost. And you found yourself wondering, why in the world, God, would you let my life turn out this way? And worse yet, we find in verse 8, that not only had God led them there with the pillar of fire and cloud, but he's the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart to make him as mad at him as he was. Look, this is my point. From every appearance, it really looks as if God has orchestrated this perfect failure for his people. This is his doing. So my question is, like, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever, you've heard me say that, like, these are the scenarios that God tends to sort of intervene and show up. 
But it also can sometimes feel like, what is he doing? Why is this happening? And so here's the point. I think actually God actually gives us the answer to that question. And it's something that's vital for us to grasp. And he gives it to us twice in verses 4 and verse 17. Because the reason the circumstances are as jacked up as they are, Moses and my people, is given to us right there. Because I will get glory over Pharaoh. That's why. That's the ultimate answer to the question. Remember, Pharaoh has already asked the question way back in chapter 5. Do you remember his question? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And this is God's answer. Because somewhere through this all, I am displaying my power. I'm getting glory for my name. The reason why your life is happening the way that it is is because I am spreading my fame. Look, this is such a foundational truth here. And as it turns out, one of the more encouraging things, because when you put yourself in these people's minds and start to say, God, why are you doing this? Why am I suffering? Why is this happening to me? Every Christian answers that question somehow with this answer. I don't know, but I know that God is getting glory from it. And just because I can't see it doesn't mean that it's not true. But here's the deal. Once a Christian comes to own that, you begin to start healing. Speaking of healing. Because we begin to realize, you know, the universe does not owe me an easy life. It doesn't. And the suffering that I'm going through might be the very way in which God is digging down real change in me. Why? Because he's getting glory for himself. And he's good. And at that moment, when all of a sudden we take the pressure of running God's world off of our own shoulders, (laughs) you start to get better. That's the healing that takes place there. Look, this is the question I want you to grapple with. What is the direction of the universe? Where are all things going? Because in the Christian's mind, every event, every endeavor, every mistake, every passion is all culminating and terminating in the apprehension of the glory of God. And to get lost in the wonder, love, and praise of that begins us getting better. That's what he's doing, even in the midst of impossible situations. That brings me to the second final point, and that is a miraculous salvation. You don't just stop there, by the way, okay? The whole point of the passage is to show that God has a saving arm. Yes, he's sovereign, but he actually is one who saves his people from impossible dangers. And what I think you see here, and what the commentators draw very well here, is that what God is doing is he is working out a very appropriate, perfect judgment against the false god, the false deity, Pharaoh. That's what he's doing. Think about it. You know, in verse 20, we find that the cloud was very interesting. It was pure darkness to the Egyptians, but it was light to the Israelites. And a lot of people draw the significance between the ninth and the tenth plagues. Remember, the ninth plague was darkness that was followed by a great destruction of all the firstborn children in plague number 10. Well, that's what's happening here. A period of great darkness is followed by a great mass destruction. You know, the drowning, if you think about it, in the Red Sea was God's perfect retribution for Pharaoh's attempt to drown the firstborn sons of Israel at the beginning of the book. See what God is doing. Now again, I realize that for us, we just don't like this. We don't like the fact that this sort of mass slaying was somehow going to bring glory to his name. And modern people struggle with this. How is it this thing can can be happening? And I tried to start last week with this simple statement. 
that God is simply meeting every single demonic action of Pharaoh with a parallel reaction in judgment. God's meeting out justice. And what that means for us is, is that there really is a standard in the universe. There really is a standard, and there really will be a judgment. So much so that in the end, I'm not sure that we, we really get away with anything. There will be justice. Uh, For a while there, uh, preacher types like myself were quoting from this guy uh, who's a theology professor at Yale named uh, Miroslav uh, Volf. And Volf actually is Croatian and sort of lived for a time uh, in the midst of the uh, great uh, ethnic uh, cleansing that was going on there during uh, uh, terrible regimes that were there. And he grapples with this question of how it is that people in the West, and it's typically us, start to look at the idea of a God of justice and just sort of frown on it. I mean, you know, you're one of those churches that talks about God's judgment and justice and things. I, I believe in a God of love. And what Wolf says is, he goes, you know, it's kind of easy to do that when you've had a kind of a cushioned life. But what happens when all of a sudden your, you know, family members get carted off for bogus political ends by despotic government regimes? You might feel a little bit different about crying out to a God of justice who will fix the wrongs that have been happened in the universe. And those have been happened to me. So there's got to be a God of justice. But here's the question. Nobody has to think about that very long. When you realize that God's going to dole out perfect justice for you, say, well, what's it going to do with me? And I love the response in verse 14 that comes to him. Notice what it said. It says there, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Now look, some of you just went to a place where I don't want you to go because a lot of times you, you hear that, you know, be still and know that I am God. And you, When I was a kid, there were these little, um, these little uh, cartoon uh, things and you used to have little figurines that were called precious moments. And they were, they were, they were small children with huge heads. Um, <laughs> and they would say things on the outside like, be still and know that I am God. And and again, it was literally called Precious Moments Figurines. That's the name of it. That ain't what's being communicated here. The Hebrew here is suggesting like God is looking at them saying, look, be quiet and shut your mouth. Because either I am the God of your salvation who accomplishes your salvation or it ain't salvation. That's what I am going to get glory for myself. And that glory is going to come because in the end, salvation is of the Lord. That's why. If you're going to be saved this day, it's because I did it from start to finish. Which again leads us to the question that I've almost been returning to almost every week. So how is God going to mete out his perfect justice and still save his people? That is the question that hangs over the entirety of the New Testament. You'll hear me say it again. And you get hints of it everywhere. And in Exodus, in our chapter here, in verse 15, you get this. When the Lord looks at Moses, he goes, Moses, why are you crying to me? Go tell the people of Israel to go forward. And you think to yourself, Moses wasn't the problem. He was ready. Why why are you mad at him when it's the people that are the problem? Okay, frame the question this way, actually. Why does God rebuke Moses for Israel's sin? That's the question. And the simple answer is because Moses is Israel's chosen representative. In other words, Moses is not there to be some savvy politico. He's there to be a prophet and a priest. And so time and time again, Moses is going to offer himself as a stand-in for his people. And he's going to take hit after hit after hit. 
with very little positive response, by the way, from this damaged people. Now, why is God doing that? Very briefly, it's because this is God's pattern. He calls people out by mediators so that you only experience salvation if you have a go-between. Now, why would God fashion it that way? Because he wants to create an entire army of mediators. He wants to make a group of people who themselves function as go-betweens, who are themselves doing the ones that are doing the exact same things by looking at the suffering around them and having the internal resources enough to absorb it themselves so that humanity doesn't continue to suffer for yet another generation. That's the vision. That's the idea. More on that to come. Stay tuned. But for us, I just want to make one piece of application before we close this morning. And it came in the passage we read this morning in our, in our um, call to confession from 1 Corinthians 10. Because Paul makes this connection between what happened at the Red Sea and our baptism. Did you notice that? He said, for I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What's he saying? Well, he's saying that the waters, yes, they divide. Waters hem you in, they trap you. And in the same way, your sin has hemmed you in. It's cut you off, it's separated you from God and from each other. But there's some good news, and that good news is baptism. Why? Because getting baptized is that rite of initiation. It's this visible sign, this, this seal that's on our heads that look and say, I've crossed over. I've been let in. I'm in this community. We're not divided by the things that used to divide us. The old simple prejudices are gone here in this place. Baptism means that you've crossed over into God's powerful protection that he affords for his people. So that we're baptized, or whether our children are baptized for that matter, we're saying to the world, God has won a great salvation for us. He's rescued us. And that fact has become the defining characteristic of our fellowship. That's the ultimate thing we have in common. So if you ask her her age, you'll find that Tracy Allen Walsko keeps time now a little differently than most people. She says, I'm 38 in human years, uh, but actually I'm 10 years old in flight 1549 years. Tracy was one of the survivors of the plane crash of the miracle on the Hudson. And she said she had been through just this cascade of emotions in the years since the accident. But she's come to look back on flight 1549 as eventually something that was good. Listen to what she says. She says it's a daily reminder of how fragile and how quick life is. And then I am totally out of control. (laughs) And it's a new me now. She says, but I like the new me better than the old me. You see what happened to her? What happened to her? She's been saved. <laughs> she's discovered what her life was about for the first time. She's got friendships with people that she didn't know she could have before, who'd been through the same thing. And through her turmoil, she found herself in a place that was new, almost like a new birth, she says. And so here's my question to leave you with, and bear with me, because it's one of those that you probably didn't think you'd get from a Presbyterian pulpit this morning. Are you saved? Is there a time in which you've looked back and realized, I don't need help. 
I don't need good advice. I need rescue. I need the whole deal because every time when I've tried to move out in my own power, it's, it's, it's been destroyed. And I've hurt me and I've hurt others around us. Is there a sense in which you look at your life and understand that there's rescue at the heart of it? And even if this morning you're saying, yeah, yes, that happened to me. Do you understand how important it is to be reminded that that boogeyman who comes around on a regular basis and tries to convince us that we're actually something that we're not <laughs> and that Jesus has brought us through time and time again, he needs to be addressed. And we got to look and say, hallelujah, God has saved me. He has washed us with his blood. We'll sing in just a few seconds. Is that true of you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you lead us into it? Would you lead us into not just a song, but also a, a joy of knowing that we have been rescued, that our sin, just like those waters, had separated us from you. And it's the simplest of message, but it's pictured for us every time in baptism. And so, Father, if we've been washed before, we pray that you would remind us. But maybe, Father, for that soul who's waking up and realizing they never understood this, would you maybe move in them very powerfully, even this morning, even in this place, that they might come to know you for the first time? Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.